Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up? Shalom. And welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me, as always, my friend, my mentor, my teacher, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Hi, Caleb. How's it going, brother? It's going well. I have to say, I really like our intro. <laughs> Thank you. I put that I like together myself. like two sides of the same state. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good times. Well, hey, how's your week been, man? It is good. Yeah? It is. I, I'm very grateful to Adonai for the beautiful springtime. Um, I can walk out in my grass in my bare feet. Oh yeah, which feels really good. I miss that during the winter. Well, you you guys are really into spring now because uh, you're you're over on the uh, on the east side of the state in Spokane, and it gets quite a bit hotter over there than it does over here. However, I got to say it's really nice here right now. Yeah, that's. I, I just I'm a big fan of the springtime, the birds singing. Of course, you know the lawnmower. You hear the lawnmowers in the distance, that sort of thing, but. Uh, I'm also grateful to have a, a nice little backyard that's semi-private. So I go back, sit there, and read, and uh, fairly insulated from the rest neighbors. of the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm really enjoying that. Of course, the flip side is there's a lot of dandelions that need some attention. <laughs> They're going <laughs> to multiply if the, I don't take care of them. Yeah, mowing the lawn is something I loathe. Anyway, okay. So hey, welcome everyone to the Rob and Caleb Show. We are excited that you're here. Last week. We talked about circumcision, and we were going to continue that theme today because Rob Van Hoff has written uh, some some things on circumcision in the first century, and we were going to talk about that. However, we're going to shift gears. We're going to hold off for a week on that. We're going to come back to that subject probably next week. We'll see how things go. You never can tell. That's the nice part about being able to run our own uh, radio program here is that we get to choose whatever we want to talk about whenever we want to do. But first, if you want to be a part of the conversation, please feel free to be a part of the conversation by emailing us. Uh, it's radio at TorahResource.com. That's radio at TorahResource.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Follow me at Caleb Hag, two G's in Hag, or follow Rob at, at Rob Van Hoff, two F's in Van Hoff. And if you want to get on, if you disagree with us or if you agree with us and you want to talk about it on the air, shoot me an email at radio at TorahResource.com. Let me know that you want to come on the air with us, and we'll bring you on, and we can uh, have a little chat. Uh, I don't think we've really told people they can do that, but if you uh, let us know in advance, we'll bring you on the show and talk about something that uh, we've talked about in previous shows. You can take us to task, all that kind of good stuff. Just let us know you want to come on and talk to us. Okay, so the reason that uh, we're going to shift gears is because I am taking a class from the mighty mullet, Rob Van Hoff. And, uh, oh, by the way, last week we said that uh, I, I was explaining a picture uh, that was online of Rob Van Hoff and how he had quite a mighty mullet uh, back in the 80s. 1989 is when that picture was from. Uh, I uploaded it to the Torah Resource Radio Facebook page. That is not the nor yes, I did. That is not the normal Facebook page that you might already subscribe to, but uh you can find it uh I think if you just put 
Torah Resource Radio into the search bar on Facebook. You can find our Torah Resource Radio Facebook page. And I actually uploaded that picture and another one of Rob with long, long hair <laughs> and a Hawaiian shirt playing the guitar. My, my kids are like, those are on the internet forever now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, uh, I took screenshots of them too, so they're on my phone. Anyway, okay, so I'm taking a class from Rob Van Hoff right now at Torah Resource Institute. If you're not a student at Torah Resource Institute, I highly recommend becoming one. I work for Torah Resource, and I'm truly enjoying my classes that I'm taking from Torah Resource Institute. But uh, one of the classes I'm taking right now is Contemporary Judaisms. This class is taught by none other than Rob Van Hoff, and uh, it is explores actually why don't you talk about what it explores rob well we uh, in this course contemporary judaism we we try to trace from rabbinic times we kind of fast forward from the rabbinic times into the middle ages and then start to get a little more detailed um, as we get to the 17th century 18th century 19th century etc and how uh, the different institutions institutional expressions, I would say, of Judaism that you see in the world today came about. Mm -hmm. So we kind of trace how these, uh, what one of the authors, one of the textbooks we read is an uh, author by the name of Jay Harris, uh, How Do We Know This? And he talks about the, what he calls the fragmentation of modern Judaism. So I really like that word fragmentation. I think it's appropriate. And what we try to look at is what happened, what happened in history over the last 300 years or so that really uh, influenced the way different Jewish communities responded to the outside world as well as to their own tradition. How, you know, different groups, how are we going to, wh what place do we put the rabbinic literature in, in, in importance, in, a, in our priorities? And, and is it authoritative? Is it just guidelines? Uh, is it just uh, license to show that we can actually create our own halakha using our imaginations just like those rabbis did? I mean, so we have these different groups taking the traditional Jewish uh, body of texts outside of the Tanakh. I'm not talking about Tanakh. I'm talking about the rabbinic material and how they uh, framed their understanding of Jewish history in defining who they are as a uh, as a what we might call a denomination. You know, those in, in Christian circles think of denominations. That, that's not a word that uh, would be used in Judaism, but we do have, like, official reform tradition, right? We have official, official orthodox or conservative or reconstructionist. You know, we have these different kind of movements, uh, all of which are under this large umbrella of Judaism, but they each uh, really define themselves quite differently against these other groups for specific reasons. And, and they use their telling of the story of the history of Judaism to help back them up. So they're each, <laughs> they each use Jewish history to justify why they're different than the others. That's right. Okay. So, and basically I want to tell our listeners what we're getting at here in the, in the show topic. Basically we've already done a show on uh, oral Torah and that kind of thing. It gave more of a history. This was, you know, I can't believe that we're in, I think this is our 22nd show since we've begun. We haven't missed really? a week. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. 22. That's like, so this is in the alphabet. This is uh, 
the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Ooh. <laughs> ooh, it must mean something. Actually, we're going to talk a little bit about that, too. But basically what we're going to do today, uh, there is a conversation that is raging within Messianic Judaism. We're going to talk about that conversation, and it is the place of oral Torah or oral tradition within uh, our lives as believers. And many of you who are listening, uh, I think I'll bump our number up to the 35 that now listen to us. Yay. Yay. Woohoo. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, the 35 people that listen to us are probably uh, quite aware that I wrote a paper opposing a article by FFOZ and a gentleman that writes for them named Jacob Fronczak. I think that's how his name is pronounced, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, he basically talked about Sola Scriptura in, in something that he wrote. I wrote a response to that. And so what, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about oral tradition and the idea, the overarching idea of Sola Scriptura in the life of a believer. What does that mean? Tradition uh, from a rabbinic standpoint, should we be using tradition? Do we use uh, rabbinic tradition? Now, I will say Right away, I want to I want to preface this whole conversation. As I speak, I'm actually wearing a yarmulke, a kippa, on my head, and I am wearing tzitzit that are tied a specific way. So don't think that I'm coming at this uh, conversation with the idea that all oral tradition should be thrown out the window. Uh, that is of the Karite persuasion to think that all oral tradition should be thrown out. That's not what I'm saying. I am not a Karite. I don't believe that the Karites are correct. And we're going to talk basically through this whole show about how much oral tradition should a Messianic believer, uh, for lack of a better term there, uh, but how much uh, oral tradition should a believer in the Messiah Yeshua implement in their life? And should it all look the same? Should each congregation that we walk into that claims to be Torah pursuant, should they all look the same? Now, uh, FFOZ basically took the idea that, no, we have to have oral tradition and rabbinic authority within our lives. I'm not completely opposed to that, but we're going to talk more and more about that. So let's start with a uh, interaction that I had online with a gentleman. I'm not going to name names here because uh, I don't know if this person realized that our conversation was going to be broadcast on our show or not. Um, but so this is a whole, this is a huge argument within the, uh, within Messianic Judaism. And some people are going to say, no, even the Torah shouldn't be kept. Groups like the AMC, certain branches of the MJAA and whatnot. The UMJC is going to say that the uh, Torah the actual written Torah, I'm not talking about oral Torah now, but the actual written Torah is only for the Jews, not for Gentiles. We, of course, don't accept that. And so now let's move to this conversation that I had. This person said to me, uh, okay, well, first, I posted a, uh, a link to an article that my father wrote, Are the Apostolic Scriptures Enough? Uh, in other words, are they enough in the life of a believer for authority, or do we need oral tradition? And this was the article that he posted. You can find that online by going to TorahResource.com and then uh, clicking on the English articles. You can find this article that I'm speaking about. So I posted a link to this uh, online. And in the comments section, someone said, 
Um, spoken traditions talk about, talked about by Paul and told to stand firm in them. Where in Torah is the details of circumcision? The way is, uh, the way it is done and ha- and has been done for thousands of years is found within sages' writings. In other words, he's talking about oral Torah. Baptism is not a surface level discussion within the Torah, but brought to light with a deeper understanding of the temple services, much like many of the oral Torah commands. Why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't there uh, be a common ground. Do you wear a tallit? Where is the cl- where is that clearly written? Do you wear a kippah? Uh, where is that written on a surface level? I see so many uh, attack certain traditions, but hold on to what they want and condemn those who don't. I think the subject is more broad than what was addressed personally. Uh, so he's saying that he's referring to, of course, the uh, the article that my father wrote. So basically, he's saying there there needs to be a place for both. There needs to be a place for written Torah. Obviously, we we accept the written Torah, but there also needs to be a place for for oral tradition. And I wrote this is my response. I wrote back and I said, uh, no one is saying that tradition does not have its place. And I I really believe that we obviously hold to some some tradition. That is not at all what sola scriptura means. I have written on this subject. I reference my paper and uh, suggest that he reads the paper that I wrote. What is being said is that tradition must line up to the scripture. And for those who don't know, that is what sola scriptura was preaching. Uh, the the reformers, obviously not, uh, they, they would say that they uh, rejected Torah, uh, but the reformers definitely believed in oral tradition, and they believed in oral tradition of the Catholic Church. Uh, of course, they were pushing against certain oral traditions like the the Pope and, and other things. Anyway, continu- continuing on with my, my response, Scripture is the final authority. If you believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, then you clearly don't agree with all of oral Torah, as the Bavli calls Yeshua a sorcerer, and Judaism as a whole would agree with that. So how do we as believers figure out what tradition should or should not be kept Hold it up to Scripture. Oral Torah and tradition is not God-breathed as the, as the Scripture is, but it is still important. Um, this person then writes back and says, no, the, the Bobley wasn't talking about Yeshua. And uh, he even says, yeah, yeah. He, uh, for those who don't know, the, the reference that I'm talking, to, uh, talking about um, it says something about Yeshua being crucified on a stake, uh, hung hung on a tree on the eve of the Passover, and uh, so I I would argue that it is talking about Yeshua. He says I take uh, this person says I take Orthodox Yeshiva classes, and even the Jews do not think this is speaking of Yeshua. Of course, they're not going to. I mean, anyway, and that it is uh, lashon hara to say such things about a fellow Jew. Well, if that's the case, then why does the Bavli even say it? It's obviously talking about a fellow Jew. So to say that it's not about Yeshua because this would be Lashon Hara, that's not a good argument at all. Uh, and not only that, but when I was in Israel, when I was uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, one of the rabbis of a yeshiva that I was trying to attend found out I was um, a messianic. And he actually referenced this passage uh, in regard to Yeshua. He yeah, said, and not only that, we have other uh, rabbinic traditions outside of the Babylonian Talmud that are clearly anti-Yeshua. I mean, it, it's the whole Toldo Yeshua is a, is a story about Yeshua ex- expanding on those very Babylonian traditions of the of him Yeshua as if he was a sorcerer or a an enticer of Israel to sin. 
um, et cetera. So um, that this person, whoever whoever said that, they they really they really don't know what they're talking about. Sorry, they're just listening to a, a certain maybe what a rabbi's trying to tell them. Um, but, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so anyway, so in this conversation, this person basically is trying to say, no, we have to have oral tradition. We have to have we have to take rabbinic tradition as as somewhat of a standard for how we keep Torah. And so um, let's talk now. Uh, let's with that all in mind. Let's talk about what oral Torah is for a few seconds. Rob, I'm going to let you take this. But what I want to look at now is the the major bodies of work that are accepted by uh, the Orthodox and, as a blanket statement, just Judaism as a whole. Uh, obviously, this is you, you, we're not defining our terms here. Uh, one of the things that uh, in Rob's class that he made us kind of look at was how do you define Judaism? And really, it's it's a much harder task than people want to admit. Um, but let's just make a blanket statement. The Orthodox and the conservative, not necessarily the Reform, but uh, they, they hold to some parts, at least, of certain books. Those books are the Mishnah, uh, the two Talmuds, which is the Bavli from the Babylonian Talmud, and the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. And then uh, more recently... And what Rob's class really speaks to uh, on contemporary Judaism is the Shulchan Aruch. So uh, why don't you give us a very short and quick uh, kind of rundown of what those bodies of works are, Rob? Oh, well, that's, a, that's tough to do. But basically we have so many uh, you know, rabbinic texts from what we call late antiquity, so after the destruction of the temple up to the rise of Islam, so to the 7th century, we have a bunch of you know, rabbinic works mm-hmm. that emerged during that time frame. Although we don't really have any exist, uh, you know, extant texts from those times. They're all uh, much later, like from the, the year 1000 or later, roughly 10th century maybe, um, that had been copied or written down. So some of them might have been preserved orally so, uh, to and, some degree. Uh, but so we don't have, we don't have like a stash of rabbinic writings like we, like, for example, that we have from the Qumran caves that are contemporary with the actual group. Okay, so wait, let's break this down just a little bit more even for our, for our listeners, just in case we got, you know, we, I know that there are some uh, younger people who who listen to us. When we say oral Torah, why, are, why do we call it oral Torah? Well, because the tradition says that these, that these writings were actually preserved uh, not in written form, but were spoken and possibly sung or uh, just memorized by different sects of Judaism and passed down from father to son uh, to son to son, you know, grandchildren, all that kind of stuff. So these writings were actually passed down what is called orally or by the mouth and uh, by memorization. So when we say oral Torah, it's not that they're still preserved in that form. Uh, but they actually have been written down, and there is conversations within these writings, within the Mishnah, of whether or not a person should write down oral Torah or not. And originally, the answer was no; it should not be written down. But, uh, and we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. Anyway, keep going. Let's talk about the formation of the Tosefta, the Mishnah. W- what were the dates? And that's really what I'm getting to: is what were the dates of these of these works? Well, typically, the Mishnah is dated to about, you know, the early 200s. Okay. The early 200s. And the Tosefta probably not too far after. Maybe by, maybe by the year 250, we probably have 
the bulk of what we know today as the Tosefta probably was uh, had been kind of compiled together. Although, again, both with the Mishnah and the Tosefta, our actual written documents are much later than that. Okay. So we're projecting, we're, we have documents and we're projecting that, okay, this was really uh, a copy of a copy of a copy, you know, uh, kind of thing. Um, but the ideology, what you talk about when we talk about oral versus written Torah, oral Torah is what we call an ideology. It, it's, we don't have the word oral Torah in the Bible. Mm-hmm. We don't have the world word oral Torah in apostolic writings. Uh, Josephus doesn't talk about an oral Torah. Philo, you know, none, we don't have, even the Qumranites, you know, or the Dead Sea Scroll, the Yachad, they don't talk anything about an oral Torah. Oral Torah is a specific word in Hebrew, Torah she'ba'alpeh, Torah which is on the mouth, literally, or Torah on the mouth, or Torah which is in the mouth. And it emerges probably... Uh, really after the Mishnah. It's really by probably the year 300 or later that you have all these rabbis suddenly talking about this mysterious other revelation that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai uh, that the written Torah in and of itself isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, it, it part, well, wait, part wait, of their wait, invention of this myth which was is- to... Well, hang on. That's kind of exactly what the argument is going on in in uh, messianic circles. The the Torah and the uh, the writings that we have that we call scripture, the sixty six books, aren't enough. That's kind of what the what people are saying. We have well, right. to, and so we the need rabbis, more. How did that serve? How did the developing this myth of the two Torahs given to Moses at Sinai, one orally and one written? How did that what we call ideology? How did this story? help them in their historical situation. It, well, we had the rise of, uh, you know, believers of Yeshua rising up all over the place, you know, and ter- emerging with different expressions of their faith. And th- the core was that the, the written scriptures testified to him. And uh, so we had the Greek translation of the Torah and the prophets. Of course, the Septuagint was very, very popular and was being copied and copied and read by Gentiles now, you know, that, that took this as their scripture. And the, the rise of this idea or the story of oral Torah was a way that the, these rabbis said, yeah, you can have all the written Torah you want. As a matter of fact, the, the day that the Torah was translated into Greek was worse than the day of the golden calf. That's one of the stories they tell. That's worse than the day of the golden calf because, uh, now the nations of the world are reading the Torah in Greek, and they're going to believe that they're part of Israel. And um, But really, they don't know the mystery. They don't know God's mystery, and God's mystery is the repeated oral tradition. Okay, so wait, hang on. Let's bring it back to the, the formation of the Mishnah, Tosefta, Talmud. So uh, just real quick for our listeners. Uh, so so the, the, Mishnah and Tosefta are in Hebrew. Okay. And, they're in Hebrew. That's important. Um, and they are... Halakhic statements, more or less. There's not a lot of story, of like you know little stories. There are they're woven in there, but most of the most of what you see in the Mishnah and the Tosefta are descriptions of ritual behavior. Uh, some of which is projected that this is what the priests did. Now remember, there <laughs> the rabbis that are saying this are 
two, three, four generations after the temple had been destroyed. So they never were in a in Jerusalem. They were never even there when there was a temple. But yet they're describing this is what the priest does. This then he does that. Okay, so makes so, it valid. This is invalid. So uh, you you know you're dating that at two hundred to two fifty for the Mishnah and Tosefta. Correct. Well, then we have then we have the Rushami or the Jerusalem. Uh, Talmud, which right. is now that it, that emerges in in the Galilee, so in the nor- northern Israel, uh, and we have uh, this is in the Byzantine era. Okay, so what what time frame are you so looking this at? So this is this is uh, um, probably you know after so it's after the Mishnah obviously had been authoritative uh, received authoritative, but you have groups now that are not teaching in Hebrew anymore; they're teaching in Aramaic. But they're reading the Mishnah and the Tosefta in the in northern Israel because Jews have been kicked out of Jerusalem. Uh, they're setting up these different. There's a couple different towns where there's uh, rabbinic circles that are studying together, and it seems like some of them might have been uh, had some money, so they were wealthy, but they were probably interacting with Christians uh, more or less in the in the arena, and, and um, you know, so Constantine had already kind of come into power. So we're in a time frame where so, so the authority you, had shifted to now now there's a Christian a kind of power. So a what political or economic power in the land of Israel. So what what are you saying? Like three fifty to four hundred? Yeah, right in there. And and these these rabbis then are now speaking in Aramaic and they're reading the Tosefta and the Mishnah in Hebrew. They're reading it and then they're talking about what it means in Aramaic. It would be like if we were reading a scripture that we held more or less sacred. Like, let's say we're reading uh, Paul's letter in, you know, in Greek or something, or or something in Hebrew, and then we're recording our conversations in about English. it in our native language. Yeah. Okay. So, so we have the so we have the Yerushalmi or the Jerusalem Talmud comes out in between three fifty and four hundred. Then all of a sudden, uh, we get the Bavli. Right, and the Bavli is the Babylonian Talmud, and, and that is the conversation of Babylonian sages who are also speaking in Aramaic, but they're also reading the same Mishnah and Tosefta. Now, to the degree we don't know, like if did they have uh, written copies of Mishnah and Tosefta, or was it uh, mostly re- memorized text? We we don't know all the detail. We know that memorization was highly prized, so it was. Uh, People, it was a culture where uh, there was actually like a, comp- a competitive kind of spirit for people to be able to memorize a lot of text. So and that's, the, and the and that's bo- the bo- not just in rabbinic circles. That we have that in other cultures from the time too. So it, that's not exclusively a rabbinic uh, desire or and, trait. And the bo- but it was cultivated. But the Bavli is actually quite a much larger body of work than the Yerushalmi t- yes, Talmud. Yes. Okay. And, we're and gonna- for example, the here, one another difference is that the Jerusalem Talmud has Gemara or Aramaic commentary on the uh, agricultural Mishnas. The missions that have to do with agriculture, whereas the Bavli doesn't, it's a big vacuum in the Bavli. They're out of the land, so they, they're not studying the they're agricultural laws, so they're not discussing them. Okay, so, so that's one difference between the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. But we know that there, there was some connection. There, there are some, in, uh, in Babylon, uh, Babylonian Talmud, some of the, the, the authorities will say, oh, those people in the West... And they're talking about those people in Jerusalem. And there's almost like a, a sometimes a little bit of a sparring as to who's really the legitimate uh, uh, authorities. 
Okay, so let's jump ahead, and we'll come back to the, to the two Talmuds because I want to talk about a specific argument within those Talmuds. But uh, now we're going to jump hundreds of years ahead, and we come to the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, so well, that's yeah, that's tough to do because we go through you know the, we go through Rashi's commentary on the Talmud, right? And that's in France mm-hmm. in the so, uh, so there is eleven hundreds. You have we have Maimonides trying to codify in his Mishnah. Uh, Torah, like to codify all the Holocaust, because by the time we get to the Middle Ages, there is such a vast body. I mean, there's like 1.8 million words just in the Babylonian Talmud. Mm-hmm. 1.8 million words. And so, and then, then you've got all the, you know, a bunch of other Jewish writings from the time, all the Midrashim, you know, all the uh, other works that now it's like one person could not uh, study and understand them all in one lifetime. I mean, very rarely could there be a person. So you get these occasional geniuses, you know, like Rashi or, or uh, Maimonides, who from a young age, you know, they're like maybe child prodigies more or less, and they learn, they work hard, and they, they get to a level of mastery of all the rabbinic corpus from late antiquity up to their time. And they, what they want to do is they want to codify things to make it easier for your average Jewish person to walk according to the the general halakha. And so they start codifying. So and now for, we have a new for, form that for, comes out in the Middle Ages, the codes, for those, these halakhic codes. Hang on, let, let, let's define a term real quick. For those who might not know, halakha means the uh, keeping of... of uh, commandments, whether that be tradition or uh, or from the Torah or whatever, uh, halakha is the way we walk or the way that we live our lives. Um, and so, but specifically, of- yeah, that, generally that's true. But in rabbinic con- world, if you're just only in the rabbinic world, halakha means the way the rabbis tell you to do it. Yes, yes. That's that's it's not just how you walk generally. It's what's what rabbis say is the only right way to fulfill a certain commandment. Okay, so in other words, so halakha has a very specific meaning in the rabbinic circles. So one of the reasons that I mean, Rob, you're absolutely correct, and I, I don't want to say that there's that there's not a significant importance to a lot of the work that came out uh, before the Shulchan Aruch, which came out, I believe, in uh, 1565. It was it was written uh, by a rabbi named Rabbi Caro. Is that correct, Rob? Yeah, Caro. He was a yeah, he was Yosef. a Sephardic. Jew uh, actually comes from the the stock that was kicked out of uh, England in the fourteen. You know how the Jews were expelled. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. And those were Sephardim uh, that were you know the Spanish Jews. So he comes from that uh, stock, ends up in Israel, and studies uh, mysticism. You know the, the Kabbalah with up in uh, what we call Safed or Svat, uh, and and he claims to have. Uh, Kind of angelic visitor. Yeah, it's a lot like Joseph Smith. This angel. Yeah, oh boy. Yeah, I mean, anybody you can read Joseph Caro in English. It's Joseph K A R O. Yeah, Caro, and you could read. I mean, the wiki articles on him that you can find information about. Um, if, if if an Orthodox person heard me say that uh, that <laughs> uh, Caro's uh, story of the Shulchan Aruch, the writing of the Shulchan Aruch, was uh, akin to uh, uh, Joseph Smith and the Mormon faith, I, I think their head would explode. So uh, <laughs> don't don't uh, don't. There's no question that Joseph Caro was uh, very. Uh, he had a high level of mastery of the rabbinic texts. So it's not as if his work is imagination. He does have, I mean, aside from the 
the the visiting messenger, you know. Um, but with it, with in terms of the code, he he demonstrates a a knowledge, a very thorough knowledge of a halakhic tradition, and writes uh, a code based on uh, the early work earlier work called the Tour. You know the Baal Haturim, if anybody knows who that was. Anyway, he was an earlier uh, codifier from the medieval times. So that we have basically kind of this this new genre of rabbinic literature emerge in the medieval age called the code. It's like people studying all the Talmuds and everything, and they kind of boil it down into like do this, don't do that. You know, and and, and, and categorizing what? it in a way that. Um, people, your average Jewish family can get a copy of it in their house. And by the way, this is all on the merge, uh, on the uh, wake of the printing press. Yes. So, th- so these are these are some of the very first Jewish books to be published and printed in mass, like uh, from a business perspective, to be sold as a commodity um, uh, because of the printing press in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language. That's right. So the, one of the reasons that I want to, uh, uh, that I'm bringing up the Shulchan Aruch is because today within Orthodox circles, uh, now when Karo came out with his Shulchan Aruch, it was not, and I learned this in, uh, in Rob's class, Contemporary Judaisms. Um, we're reading this book that he ha- that Rob has us reading, uh, by Jay Harris here. He referenced this book. It's called, How Do We Know This? Um, it, in my opinion, it's an excellent book. If you want to know, I mean, if you want to know about the formation of, of uh, just the theology of rabbinic oral Torah, quote unquote oral Torah, uh, then this book is one that you should have in your library. It is an excellent book. Uh, I don't believe Harris is a believer. I think he's what is he Orthodox? Rob, he's, do you know? I, I don't know for sure. I know he's he's Jewish, but I don't know if he's Reform or conservative. I, I really don't know. Any, anyway, so the reason that I'm, I'm bringing, I'm even jumping to the Shulchan Aruch at this point. Now I know that we're we've we've spent a lot of time trying to give a little bit of a history lesson here in terms of rabbinic literature, and this is all for a point, and this is this is going somewhere. So don't don't let us lose you quite yet. Uh, the reason I want to bring up the Shulchan Aruch in general is because if you read the any of the Shulchan Aruch, you realize that some of it is, and I do say some. Some of it is is uh, applicable to your day to day life. Some of it is just straight kind of wacky. It's uh, it's very stringent, and I didn't realize this until I was reading Harris's book in Rob's class. But the Shulchan Aruch was not the only law code that came out around this time. In fact, Caro's uh, Shulchan Aruch was kind of uh, it wasn't picked up right away. Uh, and it kind of needed some time to gain the, the the speed that it that it finally did gain to get into the Orthodox circles. Today, within Orthodox Judaism, uh, much of the different sects, many of the different sects, hold to the Shulchan Aruch as a standard of code within the Orthodox circles. Uh, and so, this text kind of became the go-to. If you want to know how to do something within Orthodox Judaism, you go to the Shulchan Aruch. The reason that that's important is because many people within the Messianic circles uh, who are preaching a let's be more Orthodox Jewish and bring that into Messianic Judaism uh, are turning to the Mishnah, the Tosefta, and the Talmuds, but they don't realize that a lot of what is being preached within the Orthodox circles is not, in fact, any of those works, but is, in fact, the Shulchan Aruch, which, if you open that up, it's 
it's wacky to say the least. Okay, so let's go. Let's move back now. I and once again, stay with us for a second because we're going to get to the apostolic scriptures here in a few f- few minutes. But let's go back to the uh, different Talmuds. We're going to go back to the Bavli and the Rushami. Remember, these are the Talmuds that came after the Mishnah and the Tosefta. Uh, Rob, we placed them. We placed the. Uh, the uh, Yerushalmi sometime 350 to 400, right around there, give or take. And uh, what was the date that you put on the Bavli? Oh, it, the Bavli is like 500s. You know, basically we, we kind of uh, take the the final editing and, you know, putting together of the Babylonian Talmud in the mid 500s. Okay, so the reason that we're, we're and we're actually going to work back in order now. We're going back to the Talmuds. Pretty soon we're going to go back to the Mishnah in our conversation. So the the Yerushalmi and the Bavli uh kind of disagree almost. Now, the the Orthodox Jewish sects would probably say they don't disagree that I'm just not understanding. But it seems like you have this debate between Rabbi Akiva uh who Many of you, I'm sure, know Rabbi Akiva lived what in the one early 100s uh, to yeah, the he, mid he 100s. Lived, you know, around he was already a a, a mature man during the Bar Kokhba revolt. Yeah, and Bar Bar Kokhba was a uh, uh, Akiva actually proclaimed him the Messiah. There was this Jewish revolt because they thought that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah and was going to uh, redeem the Jewish people. Of course, they were wrong, and uh, a lot of bloodshed came from that. Anyway, not the point. So there's this debate between the Bavli and the Yerushalmi about these two rabbis, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Ishmael. These guys are important, and they're important in this conversation because they basically come with two different biblical hermeneutics. When I say hermeneutics, I mean interpretation of Scripture. And so basically... I will tell you, I'll give you my brief rundown of what this debate is, and then, Rob, I want you to take over for me. So basically, the debate says, Rabbi Akiva, well, okay, let's start with Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Ishmael said there was seven points to interpreting Scripture, and his basic overall premise was that Scripture is given in human language, and there is a... There's one meaning for for the words. Once we understand what the author was trying to convey, then we understand the meaning of Scripture. Akiva took the completely opposite view. And what he said is every single word, every single letter in the uh, Torah means something different. So if you have a word that starts, let's say, with the Hebrew letter Lamed, and then you have another word that's totally not connected in a different uh, a different passage, but starts with the letter Lamed, you can then somehow connect the two passages and make some uh, kind of insane. Uh, you can basically make the text. I don't know if I don't know if we have an example of, of something with the, like the letter Lamed, but there are um, they're pretty fantastic. In terms of the types of uh, imaginative readings that he comes up with based on, well, you know, one of the famous ones is thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's milk. You know, it occurs three times and uh, Ishmael says, or or, sorry, Rabbi Akiva says, well, that there's special divine significance that it's three times. Each of the third time has a different meaning. And then he attributes a different meaning to each of the three instances. Yeah, exactly. And so basically what I'm saying is is that if you really take Akiva's hermeneutic to its 
final place. You can basically make the Torah say whatever you want. And you see this today. You see this today within Messianic Judaism. You really do. You have these guys who are saying that, uh, you know, we, if we know what the, uh, what the pictorial, uh, pictographic meaning of the letters is, we can find all these great new meanings for each word within the, within the Torah. And, uh, you have other groups of people saying that the, the sign of the direct object at, uh, Aleph Tav is actually a prophetic sign of the Messiah. So Rabbi Akiva's hermeneutic is alive and well within Judaism, but it's also crept into Messianic Judaism. Uh, I personally, and I believe Rob, I, I, I'm 100% sure that Rob would also take Rabbi Ishmael's view of, of how to interpret uh, Scripture. So this is an important uh, thing to note, and the reason why is because when we're talking about oral Torah, the first thing that I want to ask people who believe that we should uh, hold oral Torah up on the same plane as written Torah is what oral Torah are you talking about? Are you going to take Rabbi Akiva's view of oral Torah? Are you going to take Rabbi Ishmael's view of oral Torah? Because that is one debate that is uh, obviously they disagree with each other. And beyond that, it's a very important place to start. You know, which hermeneutic are you going to have? Okay, so with that, with all that being said, I'm going to let that kind of simmer for a few minutes. Let's move back then to the Mishnah uh, and the Tosefta. One thing that I find interesting, Rob, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, is that, um, and we're going to, after this, get into the Apostolic Scriptures, what is known as the New Testament in Christian circles, uh, which we call the Apostolic Scriptures. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. One of the things that I notice is, is that you have the apostolic scriptures being written during and after the time of Yeshua being on earth. And in, within the mission in the Tosefta, you don't really have any rabbis that go before the time of Yeshua. You have what I can see, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Rob, what I see is the earliest rabbis being attested to within the uh, Mishnah and the Tosefta is Rabbi Hillel and Shammai, which were contemporary with Yeshua. Am I correct on that? Yes and no. Okay. Yes, in that uh, the later rabbinic texts talk about stories from people way back, you know, into you know, like Hillel and Shammai, but they do not call these people rabbi. Okay. That's an important point. They, they never call Hillel a rabbi. They never call Shammai a rabbi. Rabbi is a, a newer term for them. Uh, so they, they are acknowledging a number of, of sages that we would put in the first century and perhaps even earlier. Okay. Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, in the, in the first century BC, even, um, uh, particularly in Mishnah Avot, but Mishnah Avot's generally taken to be a later, you know, uh, much later uh, after the fact story. So, but what we have in the first century, we have texts where Yeshua is called Rabbi or Rabbi, and we have, of course, John the Baptist is called Rabbi by his disciples. But those are the only Jewish men in any first century literature that we have that we have any stories about that are called rabbi. Okay. Yeah, I mean we don't have we don't have any other Jewish texts with about rabbis. 
Don't you find it interesting that, I mean, like, they're supposed to, it's basically what, and once again, if you were taking Rob's class, you'd, you'd know all, all about this right now. But, uh, you know, the, the rabbis, after a while, realized that they needed to give some kind of weight to what is now called Oral Torah. And the way they did that was by saying that it came from Moses. I'm going to read a passage out of Perkei vote here in a few minutes. But if it really came from um from Moses and was handed down from Moses, then wouldn't you think that you would see all these rabbis from the time of, you know, this rabbi said, this rabbi said, this rabbi said, but have it be from the time of Moses all the way down to the time of Shammai and Hillel? Well, this is where they play the oral card. Okay. They say, oh, it wasn't written down. But it wasn't Uh, written down. We do have, we do have the book of Jubilees. We have all sorts of, of, of Jewish literature written even in Hebrew. I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls is a, a, a test to that, of all sorts of disputes about law, how to do it this way or do it that way, or how but, do you, which, who is but Judaism, keeping these commandments true, truly. No one's talking about anyone called rabbi. No one's talking about any kind of oral Torah from... But beyond from, that, Ju- Judaism as a whole doesn't take those writings as oral Torah. They don't take them as authoritative, do they? No, right, right, because but they, they came from an earlier age. The rabbis bypass that. They don't have to address history because what they do, you know, by the third century common era, all they have to do is say, oh, it's just an oral, uh, transmitted orally uh, by the sages since Moses. And so all these other people, they just strayed from that, and they didn't know the true oral Torah. Okay, so what I want to do here is I want to argue this. And... This is still a thought that is formulating within my mind, but uh, we're going to play with this just a little bit. Um, I want to suggest that basically what was happening in the first century, in the time of Yeshua, is that Yeshua came and he said, here is my oral tradition. In other words, this is what I'm saying now is the true halakha. This is actually how you're supposed to live out the Torah. And he says, okay, so first let's look at what the Mishnah says. Uh, Perkei Avot says, and this is the, this is the Mishnah, uh, it's, this is chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Moses received the Torah from Sinai and gave it over to Joshua. Joshua gave it over to the elders, the elders to the prophets. The prophets gave it over to the men of the great assembly. They, that is the men of the great assembly, would always say these three things. Okay, and then they launch into... Uh, into what the laws are. But right from the very beginning of Perkei Avot, uh, you see this, they, they've given weight now to what's going to be said. They have given a chain of command. In other words, Moses gave it to uh, Joshua, Joshua to the elders. The elders now have passed it down to the prophets, and the prophets continue to pass it down. All this oral tradition has come down from Moses to us, essentially. And so this is how they are going to give what they say the authority of the scriptures. And what I see Yeshua saying is, my words, what I say, is the actual oral tradition. And what you have is the the apostles and the, you know, Paul and all these guys coming together and saying, these are the ethics and the actual true traditions that need to be placed on the Torah. And... Hence, we have the apostolic scriptures. And I think that uh, the 
writing down of the Mishnah, the Tosefta, and the Talmuds essentially was a response, like, oh, okay, this this uh, you know sect of heretics, as they would say, has written down their tradition, and so now let's write down our tradition to kind of combat that. And it's interesting what Yeshua says. He says um, in Matthew twenty four thirty five, Mark eight thirty eight. There's numerous other places that you have the words of Yeshua, and he says. Uh, my words are forever. My words will last forever. And perhaps maybe he's alluding to um, Isaiah 48, where uh, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of, God, of our God stands forever. So he places his, <clears throat> excuse me, he places his words and his quote-unquote oral Torah and I'm using, you know, I'm I'm making the quote marks as I say that oral Torah. He's putting his words and his halacha, uh, his interpretation of the Torah and the prophets. He's putting that on par with God and God's words in the written Torah, and that's why you have it written down, like right away. His apostles say this is on par with all that, so they codify their quote-unquote, oral Torah into what we have as the apostolic scriptures. What are your thoughts on that, Rob? Yeah, in a way, um, you know, it's kind of anachronistic, but in a way, the apostolic writings are the first Talmud. Yeah, exactly. So so the this Orthodox group has the Mishnah, this one holds to the Bavli, this one holds to the Yerushalmi, and this group over here holds to the quote-unquote apostolic scriptures. Do you now, see the difference I'm... is the apostolic writings are earlier. Exactly. And they are based around the only rabbi and discipleship circle that matters. Exactly. All the others that you see in later rabbis, uh, their rabbis and, and their disciples and um, are really um, echoes of, of the true pattern, you know, of the true, they're, they're kind of copies. And, um, diminished ones at that, in that they, if they don't confess Yeshua, they're working from a earthly understanding of Torah. Which, for Israel, you know, God loves Israel, and uh, there's blessings for the physical offspring of of Jacob, of course, and so uh, that's obviously a factor here. But when it comes to uh, understanding the the true Torah, as we say, applied in terms of the New Covenant, which is Torah written on the heart, that involves a conviction of sin that doesn't, that can't come from Torah study alone. Torah study can produce all sorts of wisdom. There's insight. It's God's Word. It's God's written Word. Um, and so there's a lot of fruitful discussions, I believe, that we can follow along with those early rabbis in their teachings. However, it's not under the the terms of the new covenant, you know that it's that conviction by the ruach hakodesh, that you know the light of his word that shines into those places of our heart that we didn't know we were sinning, you know, until that happens, and then we can confess them, and then we learn more about God's Torah and well, more about His grace and and what the new covenant means. That's not uh, that is not at work in in, in the same way in rabbinic circles. Well, the other thing I want to argue is that, you know, a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, you know, you still need all these, you still need extra biblical things because uh, the apostolic scripture doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't address a lot of the things that uh, that need to be addressed. Well, okay, 
first of all, I would argue several different things. I would argue that, first of all, the apostolic scriptures actually preach a lot more to our everyday halakha uh, than many people want to give it weight, uh, give it the uh, authority to. In other words, I believe that the apostolic scriptures do speak to things like the wearing of tzitzit and uh, the uh, the wearing of tefillin. Uh, I want to say that uh, Yeshua in some ways, and I know that people, even my father might uh, be able to uh, disagree with me on on certain po- points of this, but I would say that even Yeshua gives some authority to the individual communities, i.e., ask your local rabbi kind of a idea. Uh, I want to say that uh, that there is a lot of things that are covered within the apostolic scriptures that that people who are trying to move towards an oral Torah uh, authority in some way, shape, or form, they're not giving credit to the actual. Uh, apostolic scriptures. The other thing that I want to say is, you know, when I was in Israel, I followed along the Breslavers as they sold books. And basically, it's just a sect of Judaism who who followed this rabbi, Nachman. Nachman has many different writings. I have a couple of his books on my shelf. They're very uh, esoteric. They're very Kabbalistic. Uh, and basically, these followers of the Breslav movement are saying, this is our rabbi, he's written down all these sayings, we follow him. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't follow other aspects of of Judaism and other aspects of quote-unquote oral Torah. They do. But basically, their final authority comes from this this rabbi, Rabbi Nachman, and the writings that he had. What I want to suggest is that it's basically the same for the believers, i.e. that we have this corpus of writings, which is the apostolic scriptures, that now is our quote-unquote oral Torah that's been written down. And within that oral Torah, is there some certain things that we have to go outside of that book to try to understand maybe certain commands? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But our final authority, our final word, our sola scriptura proclamation is that our quote-unquote, I, I have to keep saying quote-unquote oral Torah, is uh, the apostolic scriptures, and everything has to line up to that. That's my argument. Yeah, and, and if I could share a, a way that I look at it that I think supplements what, what you're saying, Caleb, and it's from the realm of uh, what we call lexicography. In other words, how do we, lexicon is like a dictionary. Like we, in order to read the apostolic writings, we, we use the work of Greek scholars who put together, like you look up a word and then they tell you all about how that word was used in that time frame. And then they re- they'll cite other non-biblical texts that use that word, that vocabulary uh, piece, so that you can see how it's, how did, what did that word mean just in the world in Koine Greek. We do the same thing with the Hebrew scriptures. We can look at a certain Hebrew word, and we can see how it was used on certain inscriptions from, you know, Solomon's temple times, right? Or how how it was used in the second temple period. We can see how that Hebrew word was used in maybe coins or uh, official administrative writings or in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then what we do in the lexicon is we can look at the way that word was used in these other uh, places in the world, and that helps us Get, get insight into how how that word uh, might have had similar meanings in the biblical text itself. In other words, we don't just have the Bible without any other Hebrew words to look at. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have a whole world where Hebrew was used as a language in, in archaeology, you know, in these kinds of finds like the Dead Sea Scrolls, etc., or in inscriptions, ancient uh, inscriptions or writings on pottery shards, for example. We have these. The same thing with Greek. Uh, it was a it was the Koine Greek was used at, uh, for business transactions all across the Mediterranean. We have all sorts of uh, letters and uh, stories and things that were u- using the same language to tell uh, non-biblical, biblically related stories. Well, the the job of the lexicographer, the person who studies, let's say, New Testament Greek, they they go and they scour all these other documents that are have been preserved. To, to make sure that scholars of, of the apostolic writings have can look and look at the semantic range. What does this word mean here? Oh, well, it, well this, uh, you know, this writer used it this way, this writer used it that way. And that helps them understand the apostolic writings better because they're referring it to the cultural world, the actual historical cultural world of the, of the time. Well, I see this as and we're dependent on that. We're dependent mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. that work. It's no different. You know, the the value that the rabbinic texts have for us are in some ways the same as the value of the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, That's or the right, writings yeah. of Josephus or the writings of Philo. I don't think we should canonize any of that. But what we do have it has emerged is kind of like the historian's library. And what it is, it's all these works that were written in the similar languages of the Bible and that are peripheral. Usually people are talking about the Bible in their writings, and they're representing the Scriptures to their communities at the time, Philo, Josephus, the rabbis, and they're interpreting it in certain ways that reflects the culture that they are inhabiting, the world that they inhabit at the time, uh, with all the political things that were going on, maybe wars, oppression, maybe they had a time of prosperity and wealth, like we know in some of the early rabbinic times. Um, And all these things help us understand the world of the first century better. Um, It doesn't mean that they become authoritative in terms of our spiritual life or, or or in terms of the authority of Torah, but it's a uh, it captures snapshots of culture, and that's the value in the rabbinic text is the is that there's cultural pieces that are being preserved. It's not the authority of the rabbi as if as if the authorities of the rabbi is divinely ordained from Moses on the way down. That's what the orthodox position is. And so, if there's any though, people in Messianic Judaism that are wrapped up in this romance uh, with this idea of quote oral Torah, capital O, capital T. Really, what they they're kind of uh, mixed up. They're kind of a, a hybrid between understanding the importance of the historical background of of rabbinic texts, but they've they've got that mixed up and confused with the idea of the aura of a of a rabbi and his authority and how how what he says goes. And they're kind of somewhere in the middle. You know, I haven't seen one. You know, even under among the UMJC, I haven't seen one. Uh, Messianic Jewish rabbi say that the Halakha, capital H, is the Word of God in the same way that the modern Orthodox position is, say, at Yeshiva University. I have not seen that. You see, like, Mark, Dr. Mark Kinzer in his book, he's like, well, he's like, I'm not really promoting anyone 
version. I'm saying, you know, we could we could build a reform messianic Judaism. We could build a conservative messianic Judaism. We could build an orthodox. And and right there, the very fact that he's he's offering all the you know throwing all these different possibilities at the wall means he's not committal to the modern orthodox position, which says the halakha is the word of God and it's non-negotiable. Yeah, and you know the the other the other thing that I would say is That's, you're, I was getting on my box there, so I'll step. No, on. no, you're fine. You're fine. Actually, we're going to cut to a break here in just a few seconds, but uh, the last thing I want to say before we go to break is that the Orthodox and maybe even the people within the Mess- Messianic Judaism who are trying to say that uh, that oral Torah uh, is authoritative. They're saying that Mo- that Moses gave it to that God gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to uh, you know gave it to the Joshua, uh, Joshua the elders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What I'm saying is is that my oral Torah is uh, was given to Abraham by Yeshua. Yeshua gave it to Abraham. Abraham gave it to Isaac. Isaac gave it to Jacob. And then you have Yeshua coming back in. Yeshua gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to Joshua. My oral Torah, quote unquote, the apostolic scriptures is from eternity. Yeshua says, my words will last forever. My my words are eternal. He puts it on par with God. And John tells us that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and that word was Yeshua who came to earth. So his oral Torah, the apostolic scriptures as a whole, they have been from the foundation of the world. My oral Torah is uh, superior and and uh, lasts, even came even before whatever claim the rabbis want to give to their oral Torah. We're going to make a couple more points about this fact uh, when we come back right after this. You're listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. That's right. You are listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. Hey, we're having a whole lot of fun here, and that's why we're actually going longer than normal. Uh, I don't know if you've realized this or not, but we've actually spent our hour that we normally spend talking about this subject of oral Torah. And now I've brought up the idea that perhaps we should be looking at our oral Torah, or I'm sorry, that we should be looking at our apostolic scriptures as the God-breathed, the God-handed down oral Torah from uh, himself to Yeshua, ultimately, and uh, that and and the apostles and and whatnot that this uh, the, the apostolic scriptures, what is also referred to as the New Testament, is in fact God breathed quote unquote oral Torah. For lack of a better word, I'm I'm associating oral Torah with uh, with the apostolic scripture. I'm doing so uh, because the rabbis and Orthodox Judaism today says that their quote oral Torah has uh, God breathed authority that it's on par with the Torah. Uh, and so, uh, using that line of thought, I'm applying that now to the apostolic scriptures. The other thing that I want to say is that it's interesting how, uh, it worked out. The apostolic scriptures, you know, the gospel was to go now to the nations and the nations, uh, were going to accept the Messiah. And the, uh, this is my understanding of the prophecy in Isaiah, the, the Jewish people would reject the Messiah until the end time when all Israel would come to a, you know, all Israel as a nation, a nation as a whole would come to a faith in the Messiah Yeshua. And so you have the apostolic scriptures given in Greek. I believe that they were originally written in Greek so that they could go to the nations uh, as the command goes in Matthew. 
And so you have them written in Greek. And the thing that I see happening is that you have this very extremely Jewish document documents, I should say, of the apostolic scriptures combined into these books and and letters and, and uh, whatnot. And if they would have stayed within the Jewish circle, I wonder what would have happened. In other words, if they would have been accepted or if they would have been preserved within Judaism, uh, you would probably have people following the this writing. I, this is all speculation, of course, on my behalf, but I think that you would have more of a uh, a following of that would look a lot like a sect of Judaism holding to the apostolic scriptures as oral Torah. Uh, but instead what happened is it went to the Gentiles and to the, uh, to people who were within the Greek schools holding to a platonic view of life and theology and philosophy in general. And because of this, you have hence the Christian church, or even more so, you have the Catholic church, uh, that the physical doesn't matter. You know, this almost, uh, um, I don't know, platonic, I guess, idea that the physical is bad and that and now it's all spiritual. And through these lenses of, uh, you know, uh, Greek, uh, theology, you have the formation and tradition of the, of the Catholic church and the church in general, uh, all the way up until the time of the Reformation. And even then, even today, uh, the church as a whole still is viewing the apostolic scriptures not as a, uh, not as what, you know, oral Torah on Torah. In other words, it's not, uh, expounding on the Torah and the, uh, Tanakh as a whole, but instead the Christian church is saying that it now replaced its, its Torah in and of itself and it replaced the Tanakh. And what I'm arguing is, no, uh, it should be viewed in, in uh, concert with the Torah. And then, of course, everyone knows that I'm going to take that view because that's what view we take as one law messianics. Uh, also, again, for lack of a better word. What are your thoughts on that, uh, Rob? Yeah, it's not the... Uh, uh, I, I'm tracking with you, Caleb. It, it's not the text themselves. We're not... It's not... Uh, you know, we, we fully believe in the inspiration of the apostolic writings mm-hmm. uh, in Greek, and that that's not the problem. The problem is not that they were in Greek. It's not the problem that, uh, uh, like, we don't have the right text or that someone, the wrong person, wrote the text. It's That's none of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the seed of the gospel, the seed of what we're kind of rethinking as, as the, or, the, the original true oral Torah of the gospel, of the message of Yeshua and uh, what we call the New Covenant, um, which, of course, right, we say is not time-bound, right? It's, That's right. It's, uh, uh, that, that seed is there, inspired, breathed into every word of the apostolic writings. Um, it's, it's the readers, it's the groups of readers that have the problem. And this is just like the Torah. This is no different than, you know, there, the Torah was authoritative in the Second Temple period. You know, the Pharisees had the Torah. They probably, many of them probably memorized the Torah in Hebrew. But yet Yeshua says, your sin remains because you won't confess that you're blind. You're, you're, as long as you say, we see, <laughs> your sin remains. And Paul of Tarsus, of course, is, or Shaul of Tarsus is the, the main example we're given where he believed if you would have stopped him on the road to Damascus before the revelation of Yeshua mm-hmm. and interviewed him, Boy, he would have. He could have cite Torah. He he knew that he was doing the Torah. 
That's right. He was living it out, and not only living it out, he'd given he'd given his life, devoted his all his energies. He probably had made great sacrifices in his life, but, to but, pursue uh, uh, and and rise in the in uh, kind of the stature, like it says in Galatians one, that he uh, above many of his contemporaries he exceed, he excelled. But but, um, he, but from that, his perspective, he was living the Torah. But once Messiah. Yeah, once he accepted that. Once, once like, he accepted. Oh, the, I didn't know the Torah. Yeah, once he accepted the uh, quote unquote oral Torah of Yeshua, the, the the gospel message, then he calls himself a blasphemer. Exactly. Um, exactly. And it's not that the oral Torah of Yeshua, you know, like he says in Galatians, does that make Messiah a minister of sin? No. In no way. What it means is that I had sin in my life, and until God shined the flashlight in that corner, I was totally blind to it. I thought I was just. I thought I was righteous, man. I was doing. I knew the Torah, but then he says, "When the commandment really came, right in yeah. Romans seven, then I died." In other words, he. It's through only through the eyes of the Brit Chadashav, the Torah being written on the heart, does he actually see the actual written Torah as it is. And, and in the same way, our apostolic writings are inspired. We we affirm that with the reformers, absolutely, absolutely. However. We uh, at, at Torah Resource, you know, and, and there are other groups out there that's growing, um, can affirm a uh, the terms of the new covenant that the the new that this new heart that we're given, this heart that cries out "Abba, Father," um, is the very same promised Spirit that we would desire to walk in His ways, to walk in the Torah, not uh, contrary to that. Like we've seen these groups of readers you know, in the history of Christianity, taking the apostolic writings with that good seed and misunderstanding it. Well, you know, and uh, also I want to jump back just for a second, then I'm going to move on to one. Uh, I have just a couple other thoughts written down here, but I was bouncing some of these ideas off my dad this morning, and, and he brought up the idea that, you know, uh, getting back to the succession or the, the handing down, you know, the uh, I read that passage from Berkeley of Vote, Moses handed to Joshua, to the elders, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, Yeshua basically, uh, kind, you know, kind of, we kind of get this picture in the, in the, uh, in the Gospels as well, it says that when Yeshua met, you know, after his resurrection, he meets these two, the, the the disciples on on the road, and it says that starting with Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them. You know, so so in other words, his he goes back to Moses and the and the prophets, and uh, it's almost as if he you know he sheds light on all this uh, on on his his resurrection and on salvation, all this kind of stuff, starting with uh, the Torah. Okay, so I want to move uh, now on to just a couple more things, and then uh, we'll wrap up for the day. But, um, okay, so recently, uh, and this, I, I found this in, in all sorts of different circles of Messianic uh, messianic faith, including my own faith community. Uh, there are some in my, in my personal, you know, in the, in the congregation that I attend, there are some that actually say there's absolutely nothing new stated in the apostolic scriptures, and that uh, basically it's all just commentary on the Torah. So if there's a law within the, messi- within the apostolic scriptures, it, it's first stated somewhere in Torah or in the Tanakh. 
Um, I'm, I have to say, I reject this line of thought. I don't agree with that. Uh, I believe in progressive revelation, and uh, I think that the apostolic scriptures are a part of that. And one of the things that I would automatically go to, I'm just, I'm brushing on this just for a second because it came up recently uh, in my own discussions, but um, one of the things that I would say is that since Yeshua uh, you know, proclaims that his words are forever, and since the apostolic scriptures are inspired, we need to give them the credit that they deserve, which is that they are, in fact, scripture. So a new command given within the apostolic scriptures is not something that we should push against. In fact, uh, you know, that's what oral Torah is, is, uh, you know, trying to explain and trying to live out uh, Torah and the two main commands, which is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so these are the two commands that, that Yeshua t- tells us are the most important. And then everything else, of course, is commentary on that. So uh, one of the things that I would go to, if you really believe that there is no new command within the apostolic scriptures, what about, uh, you know, that women aren't allowed to be teachers or that they're not allowed to judge prophets within the assembly? Where do you find that within Torah? Uh, some might say that it's that a woman can't be a priest. That still has nothing to do with governing the individual communities within, uh, you know, within our our own towns and our own communities. Um, so we do see that there are uh, new commands that are given within the apostolic scriptures. So I guess my whole point in, in all of that is just to say, don't put the, just because the apostolic scriptures came after the Tanakh, it doesn't mean that they hold any less weight. They are God breathed and they are our quote unquote oral Torah, if you will. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know that I, I don't want to pound the pulpit too much on, on that, but you know, I'm using that term to try to, to instill this idea. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the idea of progressive revelation and the idea that the apostolic scriptures, you know, have you heard this kind of debate before, Rob? That, uh, everything in the apostolic scriptures can be found in the Torah. Yeah. I think only, only to the degree, like you, you know, you mentioned Luke, you know, the road to Emmaus, for example, you know, where Yeshua expounds. Well, salvation, so, so, the, justification and, and sanctification, I think, are found uh, readily within within Torah. That's not my, you right. know, obviously anything that you need for salvation can be found within the Tanakh because it talks about the coming of the Messiah, his death and his and his atonement for uh, the elect. Uh, so that's not my, that's not You know, there's, there's some good articles that your father, Tim Haig, has written that are available on the Torah resource website for free on uh, like the the dividing wall of Ephesians mm-hmm. um, and um, shall we speak of the law in monolithic terms? That was a paper that Tim Haig delivered for the Evangelical Theological Society uh, years ago. And in those articles, uh, people can go and see just a, 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 some of the examples that your father, Tim Haig, has provided where Yeshua is doing something that's in the oral Torah, uh, but not in the written Torah. You know, like blessing before the meal is just a, is a, mm-hmm. an example. So there's things like that. It's not that we are commanded to say a blessing before every meal in the written Torah. Rather, it's after the meal. But it is clear that Yeshua would uh, bless the bread. Um, and, and someone could argue, well, that's you know, maybe associated with Genesis 14, you know. But in any case, these would be midrash on the Torah rather than exegesis from the Torah. You know, and, and, and we right. could split hairs on that. But, uh, well, and, but and, and, and I don't have a problem with the idea of the, the command, like you said, to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength to 
become more and more adorned and more and more elaborate as time goes by. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think that's the nature of tradition, um, and that that's not a, a bad thing. Well, somebody uh, brought up to me when I was having this conversation about ap- the apostolic scriptures giving us, uh, you know, possible new commands. Uh, somebody brought up the passage in Deuteronomy twelve thirty two. Um, and let me see it. Uh, let me read it real quick here. It says, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. And, uh, that person said, see, so we can't add any commands that are not in Torah. Uh, I'm writing, I'm, I've decided I'm going to write something to do with, uh, suzerain vassal treaties, uh, within the Torah. And my argument to that is simply that Deuteronomy, well, first of all, that Exodus 20 is uh, seems to be laid out like a suzerain vassal treaty, and uh, it's called a covenant. It's called a covenant uh, in several different places within the Torah. Uh, this, this, you know, the ten words essentially, or the ten commandments, as they're called. And then Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy, in my opinion, one of the things that I'm going to try to argue in times to come, in, in some of the things that I'm going to be writing, is that uh, Deuteronomy and and uh, Klein has already done extensive work on this, and I think he makes a very, very good point. Uh, and I think it's pretty well accepted by by scholars that Deuteronomy as a whole is laid out as a suzerain vassal treaty and a covenant basically between God and His people. And uh, you know you you have the uh, God's uh, covenant lordship. You have the uh, stipulations of the covenant. All these kind of things. Anyway, so my point uh, in that is that when he says in Deuteronomy twelve thirty two, you're not allowed to add to this or take away from it. I believe he's talking specifically to that covenant. In other words, if you if you do these things, I'm going to bless you. This is how I'm going to bless you. If you don't do these things, uh, this is how you know. This is the the retribution that will come upon you. And what he's saying in 1232 is you're not allowed when it, in respect to this covenant, uh, you're not allowed to add or take anything away from it. And so in this passage, 1232, I believe he's speaking directly about the covenant of Deuteronomy. Um, that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to have other covenants. And it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to have other stipulations within your life. But it has to do with that specific covenant i.e. the covenant of Deuteronomy, the the uh, renewal covenant of Deuteronomy. Uh, that's a personal opinion. Anything to add to that or take away from that? Well, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that there is definitely, like we were talking about Paul, right? And what, what was the difference between Paul's perspective? How did he read the Torah on one day, and then how did he read it, you know, after Damascus? You know, uh, it's the same written Torah. The Torah itself hasn't changed but he's going to exegete it differently because he's coming from a position of, of a new heart. And so, again, to say that there's nothing new in the apostolic writings, I'd say yes and no uh, it, because of that. Because of once, once we're given the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, we can't go back. We, are, we do see things new in a new light. And so, therefore, commandments such like in, in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father by him. Okay, so that's, that's a command to whatever we do, in word and deed, to do it uh, in Yeshua's name. Okay, that's a, that's a commandment that obviously is not in the Torah. Now, we could say, well, it's a, that's an expression of loving God with all your heart and also your and all your strength, which is the Shema. And I'm saying, yeah, so the seed is in the Torah. Absolutely. 
Well, it's like, like that with everything, though, because the ultimate uh, two commands are love the Lord your God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. So everything basically stems from those two commands. I'll agree with that, but I guess my point, you know, what I was trying to get at is that there are things within the apostolic scriptures that you don't see commanded within Torah. Uh, and, you know, the example I used was was uh, a woman in, in leadership or judging judges within the assembly. Uh, you know, Paul says, no, I don't allow women to do that. So do we take that as a new command? I would say yes, we do take it as a new command. However, I would also say that the uh, that the authority that's given to the apostolic scriptures allows the apostolic scriptures to give us commands like that because it is the living out of Torah within our lives and therefore the quote-unquote oral Torah that we are to hold to. Uh, do you agree with that? Sure, yeah. And there's times where Paul says, he, Paul makes a difference. He says, now this is my opinion. Yeah. You know, and where he, he clarifies that he's, you know, a man, but he's trying to apply the truth of the gospel as in its pristine uh, truth, you know, to a specific historical situation and problems. And sometimes we don't know all the dynamics of, of what was going on in Corinth, you know, when he's writing. What, was, what were all the things that Paul knew uh, were going on that, that uh, you know, shaped how he was writing, you know, uh, to that community. So uh, th- there are some of the things like that, that we, the applications of Torah uh, that are specific to a situation that we don't always know the, the background, but we can trust that this was, uh, you know, what the Holy Spirit was guiding at that time. That's right. This conversation today has stemmed from the class Contemporary Judaism's by Rob with by t- teacher Rob Vanhoff, the guy you've been listening to, uh, and it's taught at Torah Resource Institute. If you are not taking classes at Torah Resource Institute, I uh, would highly recommend them. Uh, these are the con- com- kind of conversations that we're having. The book that we've referenced today is called How Do We Know This by J.M. Harris. It is a great book uh, from a Jewish perspective on oral Torah. I would highly recommend it to anyone, especially if you think that uh, we should be keeping oral to- quote-unquote oral Torah. The last question I'd have for you, if you do believe that oral Torah carries some kind of divine weight, is what oral Torah are you talking about? Are you talking about the Bavli? Are you talking about the Yerushalayim? Me? Are you talking about the Shul Kanaruch? All these kind of things. Uh, you know, you need to define what you what you're talking about within oral Torah. Uh, next week, hopefully, we'll be talking again about circumcision and some of the uh, rituals and beliefs of the first century. And we're going to pick Rob Vanhoff's brain on that again. The last thing I want to say, and the thing I want to leave you with, is before you jump to oral Torah and try to make that authoritative, what I would suggest and recommend is that you look first obviously, to the apostolic scriptures and see if uh, what you're trying to expound is in those writings first, because those writings are uh, divinely inspired and glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. (laughs) 